following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Friday and today, uh, we've been looking at some of the extraordinary things that God's accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection and what they mean to us. On Friday, we, for- we focused on the scope and necessity of his suffering on our behalf. No way to, I don't think there's any way we can, ple- can completely fathom any of this, but that shouldn't stop us. It's like you can swim in the ocean without understanding the ocean. I, I don't know if that's the best illustration I've ever given, but you get a taste. I don't know if you ever played in ocean waves and how magnificent they can be. They can also be quite devastating. But we get the opportunity to encounter, in so many ways we encounter tastes of the power in creation. We never can fathom it all. And when it comes to what God has done, and of course beginning with creation, and and all that he does to sustain it, But it comes to this climax in the death and resurrection of his son. And I've been trying to to help us all to understand. And that always includes myself as I grapple with these things, as I prepare to share these messages with you. We don't just stand in awe of what he's done. We, We can. To some extent, we should. But we're not spectators in what God has done. To to think all the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, but only one said, call me to walk on the water with you. As the others watched. How much watching have we done? when actually he's calling to us to get out of the boat and stop being spectators. Some of us love reading wonderful biographies of great heroes of the faith, and we often do the same thing with those people. Aren't they amazing? But if you are a child of God today, You are amazing. And how many amazing people are hiding away? When I when I I watch things, and this is not I'm certainly not bragging about myself. There's just one element about well, you know what? I I don't know if all kids are like this. But we were always able to tell, especially from our boys when they were young, we could always tell what they last had observed because that's what they were playing. If they saw a hockey game, they were doing hockey. If they'd gone to the orchestra, they were conducting the orchestra. Could always tell what they'd last observed from what they were doing. But many of us, 
And again, I wonder, I, that might be how we are all as kids, maybe. And then we lose it. Because many of us go from observing to observing, rather from observing to participating. And it's one of the problems which I find, one of the problems with sports. You know, we've, because we've raised 10 children, we've had, I'll speak for myself, I've had far more opportunity to learn from my mistakes because I've made plenty of them. Um, we're designed... Oh, yeah, okay, so that's where I was going with that. So I remember introducing, especially to my boys, hockey. When, we, when, the, when our kids were younger many, many years ago, we didn't have TV and and we hardly watch videos, and that's really changed through the years. But I remember when we had this opportunity to show, I showed hockey to the boys, and, now, and thankfully they wanted to play. But what happens is often what we want to do, and it's happened to us as a whole culture, when we watch, we want to watch more. And so it's an issue that I have with spectator sports. I, I love sports. Not a, I don't follow it like I did when I was younger. But something I've tried to impress upon my kids is what are we learning? What are we learning from observing? One of the, one of the loves among many in our family in sports is figure skating. I may have mentioned it before because I, I love talking about it. One of the things you see in figure skating is actually in all sports. There's something about figure skating that has this in, in, a, in a particular graphic way. And it's the ones that are able to, to fall and get up and move on. And you can fall and still win a gold medal. It's not about the falling. But most of us, when we fall, we think about our failure. And often our failures in our lives that happen very early when we're children draw us to become observers and spectators and not participants because we become so afraid of failing. But it's all to say that we observe in order to do, not just to observe. And so when we ponder the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just to applaud him. He certainly is worthy of the applause for he has done something that no one has ever done. No one else will ever do exactly what he did. But he did what he did in conquering death for us so that we could live in the way that God has called us to live. He conquered death so that we could know that there is no failure that can ever keep us down. None. You know, hearing stories about, about murderers on death row who come to true saving faith in Jesus, to think that even in that kind of dark, horrific place that has no positive and in the natural, that a person could find peace because of what Jesus has done. I love to quote 
the words of Betsy Ten Boom, the sister of Cory Ten Boom, the Ten Boom family having hid Jews in Holland during the Holocaust, only to be arrested, and several died in the camps. But Betsy said, there is no pit that is, no, that is so deep that he is not deeper still. And those words of comfort are not there just to soothe our hearts. They're to call us up because whatever pit we might be in, we will not stay there if we cooperate with the Lord. He's always calling us from death unto life. And this has become possible for us because what he has done and he's calling us to participate in the eternal life that he bought on our behalf. And that eternal life is not something that we simply anticipate when we die. It's something that we experience now. It's first and foremost a quality of life that we can have because what Jesus has done. So I want to look at, for a few minutes, at what is at our disposal because Jesus rose from the dead. There's a tendency in, in the church to solely focus on Jesus' death that we think that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. But without the resurrection, his death would have been just a death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have nothing. We have worse than nothing. So I want to read Hebrews 4.14 through chapter 5 and verse 10 again, and I want to focus on a particular statement that the writer of Hebrews makes. This is the same passage that I read on Friday. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ, the Messiah, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So I want to look at a mo- for a moment at verse chapter 4, verse 16, uh, more closely. It says, which I read already, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, this sounds like such a religious statement. Throne of grace, mercy, find grace. But do we realize what's being said here? I explained a little bit on Friday. If you missed it, you, could, you can uh, watch or listen to the sermon online. But Jesus is our great high priest who gave of himself to bring about our reconciliation with God. The book of Hebrews is a call to believers who who were buckling under the pressure that they were facing because of their faith. It had become too much for them. They'd started off really well, but now they were hiding their faith away. They were just fitting in. They were getting by by getting along. Because to do otherwise, to make a strong stand for the Lord, they were beginning to deem that it was too hard. And so the writer is, is, is writing a letter that could be summarized by the words, Come on, guys. Let's get with it. Remember what it is you're actually believing here. And in the midst of this explanation of Jesus being our great high priest, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in it to help in time of need. Through what Jesus did on the cross for us and that's made real through his resurrection, we have access to the very throne room of God. Have you ever wished you could go right into the Prime Minister's office and have a word with him? Whether this Prime Minister or another one, or a Premier or the Mayor? Some of us as kids learned that we hardly had access to our parents. We couldn't, you couldn't really talk to the teacher. I guess in some churches, the pastor doesn't get approached. There's these walls that are put up either by ourselves or others that keep people in authority or seemingly authority disconnected from us. Now, all disconnection is based on the fact that we live in a broken world because of our first parents' sin that separated human beings from the great authority, God himself. And from that time, God determined to restore our alienation from him. That's what he desired with the people of Israel, building a house in their presence so that he would dwell among the people 
And yet it was to be learned that that could not be done because of sin, because of that tendency we have to go our own way, to do our own thing, to not listen to our Heavenly Father, to think that we know better, to, go, to be driven by our desires, to be trapped by our addictions. God cannot tolerate dwelling in the presence of such filth. And yet he determined to bring cleansing to his precious human creatures. And that's what he did in Jesus. And interestingly, we don't hear about this that much. But when the people of Israel had to um, do various sacrifices at various times for cleansing, one of the things they had to do was they had to cleanse the temple. They had to cleanse the area where God himself dwelt because it became unclean due to the people's sin. And we see this pictured for us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus brought his blood into the heavenly realm. So what was pictured in the earthly realm through the the sacrificial system of the people of Israel, that was preparation for when Jesus would bring his blood into the heavenly realm to bring cleansing to the entire universe. And that his blood, which is his death, it's not the substance itself that does anything, it's the fact that he poured out his life in death, that the righteous one who did not deserve to die, who came and lived a perfect life, and yet experienced what everybody else experiences despite his perfection, justice was done for, uh, by bringing him back to life, breaking the power of death, And he comes into the heavenly realm and cleanses that so that we can have access to it. The door to God is open. It doesn't need a sign. Walk right, knock and walk in. Because the door is open. Now, if you had the world's greatest expert as your best friend, what would you do when you had a problem? Oh, try to solve it yourself. Okay, but I mean a real problem where you're really, really stuck and you have somebody there by your side all the time to help you with everything. Well, it seems to me a lot of people still rather do it by themselves. And I think it's because you were taught as a child that that's what was expected of you. And yes, we do need to learn to be responsible. But when we're stuck, where do we go? Do we go? We all have go-tos. We all have go-tos. Because none of us is complete in and of ourselves. We all get stuck. Now, some people end up in in a vortex of they got to try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. But then there's the go-tos we have, whether it's the people in our lives or the pain of whatever it is we're up against so needs to be soothed. We go to substances and distractions. When we have access to the very throne room of God, God is with us. And he's always here, 
ready to hear our issues and help us in our time of need. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. He's always ready to bestow mercy on us. But do we believe that? Or do we think we're going to face a scowl, a posture of disappointment? Do you think when we get to the confession part of our service every Sunday, God goes, here they go again. Oh, that's sin again. Aren't you ever going to learn? Now, there's times, we even saw it in the scripture that was read. There was the angel speaking to the disciples and basically saying, you're supposed to get this, guys. You're supposed to understand because he told you over and over again. But you know what? I hear my attitude as I'm saying, I'm probably not with that attitude. Our Father is a God of mercy. And we also read in this passage how our high priest sympathizes with us. And so however we fail, God is moved in pity towards us. There's no crossed arms harumph from God. He's always ready with open arms. But we need to come. He's always ready to provide mercy, and in his presence, we always find grace. Now, for many, grace is this unmerited favor that God bestows that enables us to become his children. But the word grace actually means God's empowerment. It's God's giftiness to us. That what he knows how much we lack And very often, he's just waiting for us to come. Because he's got all the resources at his disposal for us, but he's waiting for us to come. The door is open. Forgiveness is granted. There's no more barriers. Yeah, but I stop it. But I stop it. Stop condemning yourself for what God does not condemn you of. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, does that mean we can do anything we want? Well, if you really want to do whatever you want, and you really want to go your own way, and you want to make excuses, and you don't really want to come to God, then you can call yourself a Christian all you like, but the Bible says you're a liar. And the earlier you accept that, the better, so that you can get right with God. God sees through all the lies and all the deception, all the hiding, all of it. And yet, all the time, he's waiting for us to come. Stop wallowing in the mud. Stop putting on all sorts of of wealth and, 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 and seemingly success and think that makes you something. God sees through all that stuff. He knows us through and through. And yet, knowing us through and through, his door is open to us. I've spoken here on Ephesians before, but I want to read this again. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 22, to understand what God has for us. 
I'm, I'm going through my own personal time in Ephesians right now, and I'm really struck at, there's, people often use Ephesians to talk about all these wonderful things that God has done, and that's, that's there in the book, and I'm going to read some of that. But why is he telling this to the people? These are true believers, and yet they're living like spiritual paupers. They're doing all sorts of things they should not be doing. They're not grasping all that they have in the Lord. And that's why Paul writes this, Ephesians 1, 15 to 22. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. You know that God wants to give us a spirit of wisdom? There is no room for spiritual dum-dums in the kingdom of God. Because the God of wisdom has wisdom for us. How it works in your life is not going to look like how it's going to be in your life. But the God of all wisdom wants to bestow wisdom to his people. Give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Note this. This is verse 19. What He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's that oceanful, oceanfulness of his resources for us. You can't see the other side. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, the Messiah, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You know, we've got connections. We've got connections. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced having a connection. Where the situation where you're trying to get something done and somebody's and and you're trying to call the right person and then you find out from somebody that somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and you just call this number and all of a sudden it feels like magic because then all these doors open well we've got that 24 7 because we've got connections with the greatest authority in the entire universe and he put um so that he worked in the society, raised him from the dead, and seated him in the right hand, and far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work towards us. That the, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the The goodness of God and of his power working in the universe is at our disposal. We're not on our own. We've been endowed with the power of God. Now, I want to remind us as we draw to a close here that what does it mean to walk in in the power of God? What does it mean to be in... have heavenly resources at our disposal. There's a same, we, it, it, it's easy to paint a picture that we've got all these riches, and so therefore the true believer should be on kind of an like easy street in life. But that's not 
what the Bible teaches. We're given these resources that we can engage the mission of Jesus. That we can continue to do what he began when he was on earth teaching his disciples and preparing them to fulfill all that the Father wants to do in the world. And that's been passed on to us. So early in the book of Acts, um, a couple of the apostles are arrested for preaching in Jerusalem about Jesus. And they were threatened by the religious authorities. And so it says in Acts 4, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. They They were threatened. They were being pressured. The first thing they did, they went, they got together with their community and they prayed. But what did they pray? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles, that's the nations, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They knew God was in charge. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This story is not given to us so we can look back 2,000 2000 years later and go, wow, aren't they amazing? And isn't God good at what he did for them? No, these things are here as an example to us. So there they were seeking to live the life that God had given them to live after becoming convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead and proclaimed the only truth possible that he alone is Lord and every other authority must be subservient to that. And they got into big trouble, which of course is what would happen. It all started with a healing and then they get arrested. And so now they're praying and what are they asking for? Oh God, get us into more trouble. Pour out more of your power. Give us more of your healings. Then we might do what you want us to do. Now they weren't, they weren't saying give us more trouble. But they were understanding that they were on a mission. And this is a mission that has pushback from the evil one. And the only way not to experience pushback from the evil one. Is to not engage the mission. Just go live your life for yourself. You're going to suffer like crazy anyway, but not the same kind of suffering that you would experience if you actually follow the Lord in the way that he's calling us to. The choice is ours. Which suffering do you want? A suffering that's going to eventually end us up into a hell both on earth and then forever? Or are we going to follow a life that's going to have all this pushback And it can be pretty scary, but we get to walk in fellowship with the God of the universe and and have his gifts and his power to make a difference in this world for him. What do we want? What do we want? 
There's a lot of word, there's a lot of thought about conspiracies over this time of COVID. I remember somebody pointing out to me at one point, well, conspiracies are real. Read Psalm 2. That's what they're quoting here. The devil conspires and he uses earthly authorities to fulfill his desires. Now, exactly how they're being manifested in our lives, that's another, that's another story altogether. But, but there is evil at work, folks. And it's all around us. And faith is not... Uh, uh, to have faith is not to ignore the evil that's encroaching upon the world every day. The only way to be free from the devil's conspiracies is to be walking in the mission of the Lord. And he wants a lot more than what most of us are doing today. We need to be praying for the power of God to fill us afresh. And we need, to be, we need to be out there sharing his truth and praying for the sick. We have become so dependent upon the works of our own hands. I've talked about this much in the past. We need to be first and foremost reliant upon him. And we need to be coming before his throne of grace and finding that mercy and finding that grace, that empowerment, so we could be all that he wants us to be. If anyone here is not fully walking with God today, you have no clue what you are actually made to be. God is calling for a power and a beauty and an impact that's beyond our wildest dreams. He has a feast for us. And if we are not feasting on his goodness, what we think we're feasting on is actually no better than dirt. There is so much that he has for us. How are we going to find it? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have called us to engage a power beyond any power that we've ever experienced. Father, I pray for all of us. Oh God, I pray for myself that these words would not just be words. Show me, Lord, how I easily try to feast on the cheap rather than feasting on your goodness and glory. And help us all, Lord. Open our eyes afresh. Open the eyes of our hearts so we may know all that you've done for us and the resources that are at our, bestow at our bestowal. Please, God, have mercy on us and empower us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.